Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Three exceptional writers join Consummate Chair Paula Morris to talk about and read from their latest work. The lineup includes Chilean literary legend Isabella Allende with The Soul of a Woman, a meditation on power and feminism, UK-based Ockham New Zealand Book Award shortlisted poet Muhammad Hassan with his debut collection National Anthem, and Chinese-American writer and teacher Yi Yan Li with her brilliant new novel Must I Go. We hope you enjoy it. So please join me in welcoming our lovely guest today. Joining us are Isabella Allende. Kia ora. I'm here in my den in California. Welcome. Uh, kia ora to Mohammed Hassan. Kia ora, everybody. Assalamu alaikum. I am joining you guys from uh, London. And kia ora to my dear friend, Eun Lee. And good morning, everyone. Here I'm in the late afternoon in Princeton, New Jersey. Well, welcome to you all. Uh, today, I will be talking to each of you in turn. Our guests will answer questions, discuss things, they'll share a reading with us. And then at the end of the session, we'll come together for a final question or two. So thank you very much. Our first conversation this morning is with one of Latin American literature's most stellar names and one of its most important trailblazers, Isabel Allende, the author of two dozen works of fiction and nonfiction that have sold millions of copies. Born in Peru in 1942 and raised in Chile, Isabel has lived in many places in the world and is now a US citizen resident, as she said, in California. In 2014, Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Her Isabel Allende Foundation, a tribute to her late daughter, Paula, helps girls and women all over the world. And she says that her memoir about a life of feminism, the soul of a woman, is inspired by the heroine she meets every day through that foundation. Kia ora, Isabel, and welcome. Thank you for having me in the festival. It's an honor. It's an honor for us to have you. Now, I know you said that you prefer writing a book to talking about one, but I hope you don't mind talking about The Soul of a Woman this morning. It's been described by Kirkus Reviews as a pithy, upbeat memoir by a self-described romantic feminist. And I wondered, what does it mean to be a romantic feminist? I don't know why feminists have this reputation of being hardcore warriors with a knife between their teeth, hating men. No, we fight the patriarchy, the system, not men. Now, in the book, you write very movingly, I thought, about your mother, Panchita, who married against her parents' wishes. And then when her marriage was annulled, she had to return home there. And you say she had no money or freedom, but that you no longer see her as a victim. What made you change your mind? You know, a victim is someone who can't get out of a situation. They are stuck. And my mother was not. My mother um, was very, I would say, aggressively dependent. And uh, she was raised to be a senorita, to be taken care of by males, the father, the, the husband, and then maybe in life, a son. But um, that, that made her um, submissive and angry in many ways. So she wasn't really a victim as I see it now. She could have gotten out of it. Now, by your own adolescence, you say, it was obvious to you that you didn't fit in anywhere, that you, well, we'll, we'll talk about it, if you think you rebelled or not. Do you think you were rebelling against what you saw in your mother's life or not wanting it for yourself? I was an angry child and uh, then an angry teenager. And it was a sort of diffuse anger at the world. I, I didn't, I couldn't focus it. I, I couldn't channel the anger into something until much later in my life when I became a journalist. Um, so, so of course, my, my teenage years were very difficult because I didn't, I didn't fit anywhere. I was raised to be somebody's mother or somebody's wife. And I didn't have any raw material for that. I did become a wife and a mother, but but not a very good one. 
And uh, really, it wasn't until I could work and, and study and, and find a community that I, I didn't fit. I always felt that I was an outsider. And life for me has been very strange because I've always been displaced. I have been a foreigner all my life. I have been a political refugee, a, a, an immigrant, um, and I was the daughter of diplomats. So I was always moving and I didn't have roots anywhere. I was displaced and that, that also uh, made, me, made, me, made me sort of an outsider. I've always been an outsider, which is very good for a, for a writer actually, because we, uh, when we outsiders, we have a lot of questions. We don't take anything for granted. We have to listen carefully. We have to observe carefully too. And then you get the stories. It's really interesting hearing you talk about this because it's something that's going to come up, I believe, in my conversations with Mohammed and with Iyun today, this idea of displacement and being an outsider. But you just said that when you were a journalist, you started to find your feet. And one of the things I found fascinating in your book was writing about um, becoming a journalist at a, at a feminist magazine in the late 60s. Uh, that was very important to you. But also what struck me as really odd was that that feminist magazine was also involved with a Miss, Ch Miss Chile beauty pageant. And yeah. back at it now, does that seem very strange to you? Of course. Now, now looking back, it's crazy. But at the time it was a glossy feminine magazine like so many others with fashion and beauty and whatever. But all the content was serious and the content was from... A feminist angle. So we started talking in Chile about subjects that had never been touched, abortion, divorce, domestic violence, rape, lots of words that were never uttered in Chile at the time. And we shook the, the culture. I, in the few years that that magazine existed, only six years, we really changed the culture in Chile. We changed the, the tone of the public discourse and things were published that had never been published before. That's, uh, it's really incredible. I'm um, thinking again about you as an outsider. Um, you wrote your first book, well, began writing your first book in 1981, your first novel, the phenomenal The House of the Spirits. But I wondered when you were talking about being an adolescent and not fitting in, I wondered if you felt that as a writer, particularly at the beginning, because you've written about the big 1980s boom in Latin American literature as really being a male phenomenon at the time. Yeah, the boom of Latin American literature was all male. There was not one feminine voice in there, not because women were not writing in Latin America, but because their voices had been systematically ignored and disrespected. And uh, the, the success, unexpected success of the House of the Spirits, I think, opened the, the doors of many publishing houses for other women writers, because the publishing houses realized that more women than men buy fiction and read fiction. And there is a whole market out there for women writers, but it wasn't there in Latin America before because of male chauvinism and the, the systematic disrespect of women. Well, you have a great line in your book. You say, first of all, we need to end the patriarchy. And I thought, true, but is that possible? And how do we go about it? We are going about it. Oh, it's a long, long haul. And uh, we make, you know, feminism is a revolution. And like all revolution, it starts with anger. But without a map, we, we don't know where we are going. We make the road as we walk. And that is the, the fate of every revolution. Uh, I think that we cannot, we don't have answers. We, ha we have intentions, we have work, we have struggle, and we are trying to replace a system that has prevailed for thousands of years. It's very hard. But what we have achieved in my lifetime is impressive. And the fact that we have not defeated patriarchy yet doesn't mean that we have failed. It means that the, the chore is pretty hard. Isabel, you I think now is a good time for you to go to a reading from your book. Would you please share with us some of it? Okay. Well, 
When I say that I was a feminist in kindergarten, even before the concept was known in my family, I'm not exaggerating. I was born in 1942, so we are talking remote antiquity. I believe that the situation of my mother, Panchita, triggered my rebellion against male authority. Her husband abandoned her in Peru with two toddlers in diapers and a newborn baby. Panchita was forced to return to her parents' home in Chile, where I spent the first years of my childhood. My anger against machismo started in those childhood years of seeing my mother and the housemaids as victims. They were subordinate and had no resources or voice. My mother because she had challenged convention and the maids because they were poor. Of course, back then I didn't understand any of this. I, can own, I was only able to do so in my 50s after spending some time in therapy. However, even if I couldn't reason, my feeling of frustration were so powerful that they marked me forever. I became obsessed with justice and develop a visceral reaction to male chauvinism. This resentment was an aberration in my family, which considered itself intellectual and moderate, but actually, actually according to our standards today, they were Paleolithic. Panchita consulted several doctors trying to find, what, find out what was wrong with me. Maybe her daughter suffered from colic or a tapeworm. An obstinate and defiant character was accepted in my brothers as an essential condition of masculinity, but in me, it could only be pathological. Isn't it thus always? Girls are denied the right to be angry and trash about. Feminism often sounds scary because it seems too radical or is interpreted as hatred of men. Before continuing, I must clarify this for some of my readers. Let's start with the term patriarchy. Originally, it meant the absolute supremacy of men over women, over other species of, and over nature. But feminism, the feminist movement has undermined that absolute power in some aspects, although in others it persists as it has for thousands of years. Although many discriminatory laws have been changed, the patriarchy continues to be the prevalent system for political, economic, economic, cultural, and religious oppression. It grants dominion and privileges to the male gender. Aside from misogyny, contempt for women, this system includes diverse forms of exclusion and aggression, racism, homophobia, classism, xenophobia, intolerance of different ideas and people. Patriarchy is imposed with aggression. It demands obedience and punishes those who defy it. And what is my definition of feminism? It is not what we have between our legs, but what we have between our ears. It is a philosophical posture, an uprising against male authority. It's a way of understanding human relations and a way to see the world. It's a commitment to justice, and a struggle for the emancipation of women, the LGBTQIA community, anyone oppressed by the system, including some men and all others who want to join us. Welcome, the greater our number, the better. In my youth, I fought for equality. I wanted to participate in the men's game. But in my mature years, I've come to realize that the game is a folly it is destroying the planet and the moral fiber of humanity. Feminism is not about replicating the disaster. It's about mending it. As a result, of course, it confronts powerful reactionary forces like fundamentalism, fascism, tradition, and many others. It is depressing to see that among the opposition forces are so many women who fear change and cannot imagine a different future. The patriarchy is stony. Feminism, like the ocean, is fluid, powerful, deep, and encompasses the infinite complexity of life. It moves in waves, currents, tides, and sometimes in storms. Like the ocean, feminism never stays quiet. Thank you very much. Now, thinking about 
Never Staying Quiet. In this book, you write also about sexual passion, erotic love, and you write, almost all the female protagonists of my books are passionate because they are the people who interest me. I want characters capable of committing obsessive and dangerous actions. A safe and quiet life is not good material for fiction. And you say you, you yourself have been described as a passionate person because you never sat quietly in your house doing what was expected of you. Do you still feel that is a, a true definition of you now? Yes, considering my age. I think that, <laughs> yeah, I am 78 years old. I look pretty good for 78, but that's Zoom, you know, the light and everything else. Uh, in real life, I don't. But uh, I, am, I rebel against the world, I make many things in the world, but I rebel also against the way we see aging because I think that the feminist movement has, movement has forgotten that aging is also a feminist issue because women live longer than men and we are discarded as invisible much earlier than men. So this is something that we also have to tackle. So I'm passionate about that. And I'm living a very passionate old age. I just got married. Can you imagine? I know. Congratulations. If, I can get, if I can get a man to love me, anybody can. Isabel, I don't believe that at all. I believe you have quite a few men who loved you in your life. That was then. I have almost forgotten their names. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something, and I know you've been asked this before, but I find it very interesting that you, are, you have this commitment to always beginning a new book on January the 8th of a year. And this is the anniversary of the day in 1981 when you started writing a letter to your grandfather, which became the House of the Spirits. Why is this tradition so important to you? Because I would be procrastinating forever if I didn't have a day to start. Any writer will tell you how difficult it is to make the commitment to sit down and write a book. It's a, it's a total commitment. It's like like having a baby, like falling in love. Everything is dedicated to that project. And it's scary. And often you also are not sure what you want to write or how you're going to write it. It takes a long time to find the tone, the rhythm, the narrative voice. So it's scary. But having a day, which is January 8th for me, means that by January 7th, I have to be ready. To be ready to sit down and open a vein and we'll see what happens. I, often I don't have the story. It doesn't matter. I just have the commitment. I like that notion of opening a vein. I think that's something that many writers feel when yeah. at the end of writing a book anyway. I, I wanted to talk to you briefly in the time we have left about the term magic realism. I mean, many writers have protested that term, including the late Toni Morrison, and you also have resisted that definition that, with which Latin American writers, particularly of a certain generation, get labelled. You said magic realism is not a literary trick for me. I accept that the world is a very mysterious place. And I wonder, do you ever tire of exploring those mysteries through storytelling? Do you ever think, I've written enough books? No. The, the, the world is full of stories, and I wish I could live long enough to tell some of them. Um, no, but what I, what I resent about magic realism is it is attributed to ethnic writers, as they call us. Uh, what is it? It's superstition, it's beliefs. When, when Americans or people in Europe or in the West world believe in something, it's religion or it's philosophy or it's whatever. When we believe something, then it's superstition. When in the United States, there is a huge industry of crystals, tarot reading, uh, psychics, all kinds of bullshit, because that's the word. And, and when we believe in something, then it's magic realism and whatever. I am tired of that. I live my life as I write. I believe that there are many dimensions of reality that what, what it, the physical world and the mental world is not all there is. And we know nothing about a lot of stuff. And because we don't know, or we can't control it, or we can't sell it, then it doesn't exist. It does exist. Now, there's a difference between fantasy and magic realism. 
fantasy has no manifestation in reality. For example, the invisibility cloak of Harry Potter. I have never seen one and I don't think you have either. But if I talk about the invisible Indians of the Amazon, they do exist. They are Indians who paint their bodies in the colors of nature and walk so swiftly in nature that they will be three yards away and you won't see them. Uh, so the difference is that, that one fantasy is an exercise in imagination and magic realism is, the, is like surrealism. It's two common events put together to create an unusual situation. That's an excellent definition. Thank you so much, Isabel. It's been wonderful to talk to you and please don't Thank go you. away because we'll bring you back again at the end. Kia ora. That was really great. Our next guest is Mohammed Hassan, who, as many of you know, was a finalist in this week's Ockham New Zealand Book Awards for his poetry collection, National Anthem. And in a landmark year where all four poetry finalists were non-Pakeha, Mohammed was the first of many firsts, including the first Arab New Zealand Muslim poet in our National Book Awards. A journalist and prize-winning slam artist, Mohammed, as he said, is in London right now. He recently returned there to work but he's left us with a collection of poems that Alison Wong has called sometimes a quiet heartbreak and sometimes a loaded gun. She says in National Anthem, he steals something back from himself and his community. He steals something back for all of us. Mohammed, kia ora and welcome. Kia ora, Paul. Thank you so much for that. Well, congratulations on being a finalist this year at the Occam's. The title of your book, taken from its penultimate poem, suggests a song of praise, of patriotism. But this book is no straight ode. Recurring lines include when they ask you and when they tell you, as in, where are you really from? And this speaks so clearly to many people's to'iwi experience in New Zealand. Why did you choose National Anthem as the title of your collection? I think for a long time I've been thinking about the concept of nationalism. And uh, as it relates to, you know, how I grew up as an Egyptian, uh, but also how I grew up and was raised as a New Zealander. And uh, over the last few years, there's been a lot of things that have happened that have really made me question our sometimes blind commitment to the fantasy or the story about where we come from. And uh, I think a lot of things that I've been trying to write about with regards to being a New Zealander and being a Kiwi have often you know, come up against this idea of what New Zealand is in the imagination of a lot of New Zealanders. Oftentimes when we try and talk about racism, when we talk, try and talk about discrimination or indigenous rights or, or um, systemic, you know, uh, discrimination, the, uh, the line that often, you know, gets said back is, you know, this isn't New Zealand. New Zealand's an egalitarian society. We're all equally here. Um, this is not the kind of thing that we deal with. And I think when we were face to face with a lot of these things when the events of Christchurch happened, I think in a very real way, some people wanted to hide into that same idea again and say, you know, this is not something that belongs to us. This is not something that we can take ownership of. When in fact, you know, New Zealand, like many other societies in the world, like most societies in the world, have ghosts that we have to deal with, that we have to come to grips with. And I think one of those ghosts, you know, as, uh, as my, uh, um, my, my fellow poet and, and kind of idol, uh, Tusiata Avia, wrote about Christchurch. Um, there were ghosts that came out from beneath the mosque that day. And there were ghosts that relate to the settlement of New Zealand, uh, that relate to the, the, the wars that were fought um, against the indigenous Maori population in New Zealand. And all these things we often try and turn away from. And me as a writer coming from an immigrant background, coming from a Muslim background, and trying to write from that space and trying to write about what all of these things mean to me as someone who is often told very explicitly when I try and uh, complain or protest that I should be grateful that I'm here and that I should be grateful for what New Zealand is. Um, I think I wanted to really challenge myself with this book and, and ask myself if I am a New Zealander, if and if I'm allowing myself to speak as a New Zealander, what are the things that I'm allowing myself to say and, uh, and how am I going to push back against this idea of being a grateful immigrant? Mm. Are, you, 
you talk about the Christchurch mosque attacks in 2019. I believe you were working in Istanbul at the time and then came back to report on them. And you said that the Christchurch mosque attacks taught you that if you're going to be visible anyway, you may as well be visible on your own terms. What did you mean by that? I think I'd be growing up in the current age that we're in as a Muslim, um, especially as a Muslim in a uh, Western context, uh, has meant ever since you know the September 11 attacks in 2001 um, that we have become extremely visible extremely quickly as a community. And oftentimes, and I mean nearly almost always, that visibility has uh, existed on somebody else's terms, whether that's in terms of the politics that surrounded our identities suddenly, whether it came to media representation and misrepresentation, whether when it came to Hollywood, when it came to the news that people were watching every single day and allowing that kind of narrative that they were um, being fed often to really paint the way that they saw our community. But beyond that, you know, as, a, as somebody that was 11 years old when 9-11 uh, when, uh, happened, um, I've spent a vast majority of my life with very real and very visceral portrayals of who I am uh, and my identity being broadcast to me through the media, through news, through politicians, through a lot of things. And oftentimes these portrayals were very grotesque and very skewed uh, monstrosities, basically, of who I am or who I thought I was or believed I was. And I think that um, part of uh, having a space and being privileged enough to have a space as a journalist and as a writer is to figure out, you know, what is my responsibility to my community, but to myself as a Muslim about how I'm going to take up that space. And am I going to fill that space by becoming uh, somebody who apologizes for who I am and tries to appease uh, wider society um, so that I'm not a target and so that there isn't backlash? Or am I going to use this space to try and really make a difference and speak often on behalf of people who don't have a voice? Recently, I interviewed you for Canvas in the New Zealand Herald, and you said you're crafting a skill in an alien language, which I think is something that is something we could all discuss actually in this group, an alien language that equally upholds the ancient poetic tradition of my ancestors and also betrays it. And I wanted to know what are these poetic traditions? How would you describe them to us? And how can we glimpse them in your collection? Well, I mean, as, a, as an Arab, as somebody who grew up, uh, you know, I was born in Egypt. I was raised very much uh, with an Arab identity, with an Arab culture. My first language was Arabic. Uh, Arabic is an incredibly poetic language. Um, it's the language of the Quran. It's a very complex language. And it's also a, uh, a tradition that dates back, you know, millennia when it comes to not just the, the written word, but the spoken word and also poetry in particular. You know, in the, um, the 13th and the 14th centuries, um, or even before that, you know, if, if we go back to like the 5th and 6th centuries, there were Arab Bedouins that were um, holding, you know, poetry competitions and competing against each other in the written word and the depth of those words. Um, there are something like 40 different words uh, in the Arabic language to describe love and, and affection. Um, it is an extremely deep language. And, uh, you know, without uh, being crass and, and without being dismissive, um, one of the things that maybe, you know, like that I really uh, was drawn to in, in the English language is often its simplicity. And I'm not trying to dismiss, you know, I think uh, a tradition of, of English language, but the English language is a language that has grown out of migration and has grown out of colonialism. But a lot of it has to do with bringing a lot of uh, different aspects together. Um, and, 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 it's, and, and it lends itself a kind of malleability to the language that I find quite refreshing and quite invigorating when it comes to writing poetry. And when it comes to, when I look back at my, you know, Arabic tradition, Arabic is often a very rigid and very structured language, but it has so much depth to it uh, that, lead, that tends to uh, explain its structure and its, uh, and its specificity. And uh, when I was growing up, you know, I, I, I found myself often intimidated by Arabic poetry because it was, it was, very, you know, it's kind of scary, the, the, the amount of rules that were uh, needed in it, the, the amount of depth, the, the kind of uh, understanding you needed about the sources and the roots of words to be able to understand the uh, definitions and meanings, um, I think really uh, intimidated me. 
And what I was trying to do, you know, in the last few years is to, is to slowly dip my toe into it, into it again. And uh, I guess not be scared about uh, trying to lean into my uh, Arabic heritage and the Arabic language that I grew up with that I am uh, every day struggling to try and retain. And uh, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't even want to say master because I'm nowhere near uh, where that level is. Um, but to bring that into my world when it comes to writing. And I've tried to do that in this uh, collection and try to bring in Arabic phrases, whether it's uh, something that my grandmother always says when I was growing up, or whether it's song lyrics from the 50s and 60s about songs that really defined who I was um, as, a, as an Egyptian and all of these things, uh, which, you know, are far from the, the, the academic kind of poetry that maybe my parents grew up uh, learning and reading in, uh, in high school and university. But it's something for me to hold on to and to really support myself oftentimes in trying to figure out what this part of me means uh, when it comes to writing, when it comes to storytelling. And how do I open a door to bring a lot more of that in? And I, and I honestly believe that the more of it that comes in, the richer my writing in English will become. Mohammed, would you read to us from the collection, please? Sure. So um, you mentioned it before, a uh, segment of the poem, and I think I will read uh, when they ask you where you are really from. When they ask you where you are really from, tell them, tell them you are an unrequited pilgrim two parallel lives that never touch, a whisper or a window to what your country could be if only it opened its arms and took you whole. Tell them about the moon, how she eats at your skin, watches you pray and fast and cry while the world sleeps, how she gives birth to herself and dies and you wish upon her children, how you wander her night Plant cardamom in your friends' eyes, cumin in their teeth, zaatar on their brow, lick the rest off your fingertips. The tastes of visa on entry, heaven with no random checks. Around the iftar table, everyone speaks of politics and God, trans rights and colonialism. We forget that we didn't speak the empire's tongue once. And when they ask you why you speak so well for an immigrant, tell them about your grandmother's laugh, how you never quite knew whether she was story or myth, the upper lip in your conviction or a song ringing in your bones, drifting through the kitchen window with the fried shrimp and the newspaper voodoo dolls. Tell them how you have always been a voodoo doll, your feet licking the flames, the stovetop eye, a television screen, a news bulletin, an open casket, the needle pushing and pulling through your skin. Every puncture is a question played by an accusation. Every bullet hole is an answer you have to fill with silence, with religion, with Xanax and daytime television. And when the Mu'azzin calls you to pray on the radio, you will wrap your limbs in cotton sheets, walk through the crowd with your hands in your mouth, waiting for the gun. And I wanted to read uh, to you guys another poem from my collection. Um, in light of a lot of things that are happening now, um, specifically it's a poem I, I wrote a couple of years ago about Gaza and it's called, There Are Bombs Over Gaza Again. Are you watching? I don't like the post, even though I'm tagged in it. Today, I am witless on a bus to meet a soulmate who isn't. In the most livable city in the world that isn't. Wearing Nikes despite my best intentions. Hey, they're anti-Trump, but they're pro-sweatshops. It's five o'clock and I'm on the wrong bus home. Thank God it's Friday but the bombs are still dropping on a Palestine that isn't. I am a reporter, but feel silent. Making news about house prices and a US president who isn't. Talking about a Muslim ban that isn't. I am a Muslim on a bus leaving Auckland and I'm trying not to read the news. 
talk to my friends in Denver who pray in terminals not made for our skin. And I tweet about Kanye West and check my follows. Check my new shoes in the glass, waiting for the wrong bus home. I wear Palestinian colors by accident and no one notices. Wear a beard by accident and hope I don't have to travel soon. Watch the skyline shrink and thank God for a hot meal in Netflix. For a soulmate at a bus stop in a home that isn't. I don't think about Israeli jets ruffling the night's feathers. I don't think about when my life is ending. I don't think about where I'll meet my soulmate if my house is bombed, if my car explodes, if they build walls in our living rooms and we have to hold hands through the cracks, if we never see each other again because of a security policy. Though a small part of me wonders that would make breaking up easier. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mohammed. A home that isn't. And thinking about what Isabel said earlier, and like many diasporic writers, you have written that your work explores an enduring search for home. And I wondered, can those of us who stand in more than one place ever have one home? Are we always making a home rather than finding one? I think that's accurate. I think a lot of it is, uh, is confusion. And uh, I think when I was growing up, I was often confused about what home was. And uh, when I was young, when I was, uh, you know, after we migrated here, when I was eight years old, I often spent time thinking about what it would mean to go back to Egypt. And uh, sometimes feeling quite frustrated that I couldn't go back and feel, and that I was somehow missing out on all the things that were, you know, the lives that my friends were leading and uh, my family and my cousins and all the things that were familiar to me. And as I grew up, it started big dawning on me that, you know, the kind of person that I imagined myself to be was not really who I was. Uh, and the reality was, is that I was, you know, spending most of my life in a place that was not, you know, where I was raised or where I was born. And that place really shaped who I am in a lot of ways that I didn't realize. And in many ways, I, I'm not really an Egyptian. Um, and in many ways, I am not really a New Zealander. In many ways, I am also 100% both. But I think one of the things that I'm starting to really try and understand is what it, what it means to actually make home for yourself. And what constitutes a home beyond soil and flags and borders and, uh, and, and a name. Um, and oftentimes, you know, I spent the last few years uh, living away from both Egypt and New Zealand, as often living in quite strange places and, and confronting places. And I realized that there are familiarities that you create for yourself in all of these places. And people often our home and uh, identities that you, you build for yourself over time through your work, through your writing, through your relationships, that is what constitutes home at the end of the day. Thank you very much, Mohammed. Uh, this is really interesting. And may I encourage everyone watching to look on YouTube for videos of Mohammed reading your work. You are a fantastic performer of your work. And you also have that dark past and slam poetry. And I encourage, and also in engineering, an even darker past, may I encourage everyone to, to hear you perform as well as, as read and buy your book. Thank you very much. Don't go away. But we are talking to our third writer now today, the wonderful Eon Lee, my classmate was almost two decades ago at the University of Iowa. Born in Beijing, Eon has lived in the US since 1996 and is the acclaimed author of essays, memoir, novels, and short stories. Must I Go is her first novel set entirely in the US, narrated by a lively, difficult woman in her 80s, a subversive presence in her retirement home. Lilia Liska is a sharp observer of life and also very withholding, a woman of many marriages and offspring who remains intensely private. And I was going to, at this point, sort of summarize the plot of the book, but Eon, I want, I want to say, would you tell us about this, this essential secret that Lilia has from her past, which is revealed almost immediately in the book about a man called Roland Bully. Would you, would you talk about your book for us? Kia ora. Yes. Oh, hello, Paula. It's so good to see you. And yes, so Lydia Liska, you know, as you said, married three times, you know, three times 
widowed and and her and her of course you know her secret her mystery was revealed on page one was Roland was her lover for a very short period of time when she was a teenage girl in San Francisco and Roland was in this was 1945 when the UN peace conference took place in San Francisco when the entire world came to California to build a golden future for mankind so that kind of you know propaganda language that was around then so she had a very short affair with Roland and had a daughter with him and and the daughter died the daughter died by suicide when the daughter was 27 just shortly after she gave birth to a baby so 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 that's the past of Lydia, who she, she, as you said, she's private. She doesn't want to talk about her past until at this moment in her life, she was 81 and she realized the entire world, including her children, grandchildren, are misreading her. So she sort of wanted to correct the record now. And we have Roland's diary. So Roland has written diaries. They've been published. Of course, Lilia is just making a cameo in them. She's just Elle who appears now and then. And she's sifting through them and adding annotations for her granddaughter, Catherine, and her great-granddaughter. So she's reinserting herself into Roland's story. And I read that you began writing Roland's diaries before you realised that the story really was Lilia's. Is this a typical way for you to work on a novel, sort of writing your way in to find the point of view? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I think with any novel, you start you know, at one place. I think it's just like life. You start at one place and you end another place. With this one particularly, I was, I, I think part of my fascination when I started the novel was 1945 UN Peace Conference. And I lived in California for many years. And then, you know, looking through the newspapers and just 1945 was such a great time. You know, it was, an, was a moment when people were, full of hope for the future and the, the, the golden California and the war is, was going to end. So, so I was just fascinated by that history of California. And then fairly quickly, I, I, I started to think about this one man who appeared at the peace conference just briefly. And I start, I just, I got interested in this man because, you know, I, 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 you know, Paula, you probably know that I like to read people's diaries. So I was reading through the periods, you know, not important figures, historical figures, people we would never have heard of. And I saw this one man's diary. There was one line that just fascinated me. He said, you know, I've achieved nothing. I have, you know, if there's a child born out of wedlock, it would not have been known to me. So when a man said, oh, I may have a child elsewhere. So I think novelist instinct is, you must have had that child elsewhere. Let me write out to find out about that child. But I, I was going to have Roland as the, the center of the novel. And, and he was a Canadian, you know, British Canadian and moving through the world to the Far East and then back to America, back to Canada. It, just his background and my background, there's just zero overlap. And I think to keep his diary for him was a way for me to get into his head, to get his voice. So I, I just, I set up this task for myself to keep a hundred days of diary for him. And, and by, I think by day 65, I got his voice. So I didn't go through the hundred days and I started to write, but as you said, fairly, soon I realized it's not Roland's story. It's that L, that Lilia, it's just a capital letter L in Roland's diary. It's Lilia's story. You know, I, I think in a way, when we read history, when we read people's letters, you know, important people's letters and diaries, and there's always footnotes. And I, I like to imagine the footnote has a story. Also, the footnote has a, a revenge you know this Lilia as a footnote revenging the the whole Roland story she's very subversive I mean her footnotes on Roland's diaries have been compared with the annotations 
of the character Charles Kinboat in Nabokov's Pale Fire. Now, I didn't read your novel as a work of metafiction in the same way, but there were some parallel lines. The fictional poet in Pale Fire is John Shade, who is dealing with the suicide of his daughter, just as Lilia in your novel has lost Lucy. And Lilia is making her annotations for Lucy's daughter and granddaughter. Now, your novel is not an intellectual game in the same way, but I wondered, are you in conversation in a way with the Nabokov novel? Well, actually, it's so interesting. No, I would say Novikov would be the last. I mean, I, I like his writing. He would be the last person I would have a conversation with. I just, I don't exist in the same space with him. So no, I didn't mean to have a conversation with him. More, I am interested in people talking. You know, I think in, in the novel, Roland already died. You know, it's the, the posthumous publication of his diary. And Lydia was annotating in a way it's writing a letter to not only her child grandchild and great-grandchild but also she's writing this letter to a dead man and just to communicate their life stories i am more fascinated by just that that just just conversations across the border between life and death that's always interesting to me um, you talked in the New York about one of your short stories um, and uh, speaking of uh, the short stories when we were happy we had other names and you spoke of colossal loss which refuses to be turned into the past tense and I know this has been something in your own life as it is Lilia's here and Lilia's lost Roland who is married and loved elsewhere she's lost Lucy and I wonder if her obsession with those diaries or what's available of them is a way of refusing to accept the past tense in their life. Absolutely. You know, I sometimes have, you know, I, I think I've been thinking for a while, what's the difference between yesterday and the past? You know, if we talk about yesterday, we would use past tense, but that, like I would tell you, Paula, yesterday I went for a walk, but that walk would be still very present in my life. You know, the trees and the flowers, they're not past, they, they are still in my life. And past is past, you know, when we started to use past tense and people are dead or gone, we will never see them again. I do think Lilia has that resistance to let Lucy, especially, you know, Roland is connected to Lucy. If, if there's no Lucy or Lucy did not die, she said, you know, I, if I did not lose this daughter, I might not have looked for Roland. Di Roland's diaries were Roland. So I, I, I think... In a way, I think you're right. Her obsession is to refuse to let the past to become past. She 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 just wants to to be yesterday. You know, it's yesterday and today and tomorrow. It's never going to become the past. And I think that stubbornness is, you know, what I feel. It's the novel really is about the stubborn woman not she letting go. Stubborn woman. <laughs> Would you read to us from the novel? Yes. I shall read from fairly in mean, the second chapter. It's a very beginning. So just to get us to give readers a sense of Lilia. So this is when she is at the beginning of the novel, 81. She's not the most, she's not the most fuzzy grandmother. <laughs> I am B-O-D-Y, in body, Lilia said, spelling her name out for the two children. Patience was not her virtue. But if she had enough to live for 81 years, there was no reason she could not spare some for the third graders. Or were they in second grade? It didn't matter. She would long be dead before they would grow up into something remotely interesting. Though even, the, though even that meager prospect was not guaranteed. Lydia was the oldest among six siblings. And she had raised five children who had given her 17 grandchildren. So she knew what would happen to the young. Yes, they start out warm and pure like a bucket of fresh milk. But sooner or later, they turn sour. Lydia had many verdicts to deliver when it came to children. One of the most dire she had given to Iola, her great-granddaughter. If Iola was someone else's blood, Lydia wouldn't have minced words. Born to lose, that was what the girl was. 
Though, of course, Delia would not say so to Catherine, Iola's mother. At Delia's age, all the, grand, all the other grandchildren were a garnish on her life. But Catherine, who had not been an essential ingredient to her own parents, would remain essential to Delia for as long as she lived. The week before, when Catherine had come to visit, she had gone on about Iola for so long that Lydia had no time to ask Catherine about her own marriage, which was seemingly heading into dangerous waters. Having predicted such a course, Lydia considered it her due to be kept informed of every deterioration. The Titanic would have been a dreary story if, we were, if all we were allowed to know were its departure from the harbor like a virgin and its barrier at sea in its bridal gown. And poor Iola, chances are she would turn out not to be enough of a ship to be wrecked for life. Here was Iola's latest failure. A playmate's father, a real estate developer, had put his kindergarten-aged daughter in charge of naming the streets and cul-de-sacs with her friends' names. Only two girls from Iola's playgroup had been left out. What kind of parents would do that? Catherine complained. What's the matter with not having a street bearing your name? Lilia tried not to point that out. Lilia had not, Lilia tried not to point out that had Iola's name been chosen, Catherine would have thought the idea ingenious. Iola had too many vowels for too short name, too unconventional. But Lilia had kept these judgments to herself. What's the other girl's name? Lilia asked. Minnie. My goodness, I hope her last name is not Cooper, Lilia said. It's Minnie, Catherine said again. Spelling the name with the same impatience, Lydia now spelled out in body for the young visitors. Make sure it starts with an I, she told them. Lydia had kept her second husband's last name. Not that Norman Inbody was that special to her, but she had liked how the name sounded and would not give it up for Milt Harrison. Mrs. Inbody, Lydia said now, call me Mrs. Inbody. Gilbert Marie would have comforted Catherine, saying that Iola was too precious a name to share with a street. Norman anybody would have matched Catherine's dolefulness and lamented, most unhelpfully, that the world is not a fair place. Milt Harrison would have made up a ditty with the chosen names, Rosalie, Natalie, Kathleen, Genevieve, all of them giving their mishaps, mishaps. Some women specialize in marrying the wrong people. Lydia had not been one of them. But all of these husbands were gone. The memory of their large hearts and small vices, no more than the vanilla pudding at dinner. Low calorie, no sugar, with barely enough flavor. Who would have known that she would live to see a day when food prides itself on offering as little as possible. I'm going to stop here. <laughs> she can be quatchy for 200 pages. <laughs> that is really, you know, it gives us a really good taste of Lilia, who is a difficult woman and therefore is a fantastic person to follow through this novel. Um, I was going to ask you a question about not writing in your mother tongue, but if I can, if I can bring back Isabella Mohammed for this part of the discussion. Because I realized when I was reading all the books that I'm reading the work by all three of you in English for the festival. But English is not a mother tongue for any of you, as we've discussed. And Isabel, I believe you translated The Soul of a Woman Yourself from Spanish to English. And I wonder for each of you, how much pause does translation of concepts or translation of what's imagined and experience give you? I wonder what's lost and what's found and moving between languages for you, even if it's an imaginative moving rather than an actual literal act of translation. Ian, maybe you could speak first because you talked about, in a way, disowning your mother tongue 
or being orphaned from it. Right, right. You know, I have certainly written, a, you know, some about my decision not to use Chinese to write. And in, in my nonfiction, Dear Friend from My Life, I write to you in your life. And it is, it is my choice not to write in my mother tongue. And in fact, I think, you know, part of it, I lived in, I've lived in America for 25 years now, and English has become, you know, a daily language. But more importantly, because I've never written in Chinese creatively, English is my first language in writing. And, and I, I, I think the, 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 the problem with Chinese, you know, it's a beautiful language. I grew up in Chinese literature and I grew up in, you know, reciting poetry, Asian poetry, which, you know, I think would be a little bit like uh, my fellow, <laughs> but, uh, fellow panelist Muhammad's experience of, you know, reciting Asian poetry. But I think Chinese when I grew up, was also a language that was very public. It was used by everyone. You know, I, I think there was that the element of propaganda and also just used by everyone along the party line. And that really sort of turned me off from that. And I think when I found English, when I started to write in English, it really became my, my language, my private language to think and to write and to feel. So that's how I feel. You know, I think there are losses, you know, anytime you lose, you go from one language to another, you lose certain things, but you also gain things. I see both Isabel and Mohammed nodding at various points. And Mohammed, for you also, English is the language in which you write, yes? Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I mean, um, I, I really like that idea of, of English as somewhat of a private language. Um, and I think in some ways it's, it's true for me as well, and I'm. Uh, I think about you know Ocean Vuong's uh, beautiful book on Earth. We're briefly gorgeous, and and you know that that kind of is what that book is about. It's about a young Vietnamese American kid writing English letters to his mother that doesn't read English, and in some ways he has this freedom to be able to write everything that he wants to say to her in almost an unfiltered way. And sometimes that is the case for me as well. Um, I think in in some ways I am able to write things uh, about uh, you know sometimes to my family and 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 about uh, childhood experiences and things like that with a sense of liberty in English um, because it almost feels like I'm kind of uh, you know hiding uh, these kind of quiet conversations or having them with myself. And in some other ways, I think it's uh, it often feels like a betrayal. You know, we talked about that before. The idea that I'm writing about my parents sometimes in uh, in a language that they don't have the same grasp of as as I do. Sometimes what happens is, or oftentimes what happens is, when I'm writing poems that include members of my family, my mother will ask me to to print out the poem and come and sit down and and read it out to her and translate it and explain what I mean by certain images and certain um, phrases, uh, which is you know it's difficult for me trying to explain certain metaphors that I'm comfortable with in English, in Arabic, which which is a language that I often struggle with. Um, but I also would like to think that the same kind of um, brokenness that I have sometimes when I try and speak Arabic, the way that I mistranslate things or, or transliterate things from English, that I will do in the same way in English. And uh, as a poet, I think that's kind of an asset to not to, to write in a broken way. Isabel, you're fluent in English, obviously, as in Spanish is your mother tongue. You don't always write in Spanish, do you? Always. Only in Spanish. I can only write fiction in Spanish. And if it's um, a, an article or nonfiction, I can do it in English or a speech. Um, but I think in Spanish, I pray in Spanish, I make love in Spanish, I would feel ridiculous panting in English. And it's it, <laughs> Spanish is my, my territory. Um, so translating the soul of a woman was easy because it's nonfiction. And so I can deal with the language in that way. But it's interesting because I have a computer with a wide screen. And, and while I'm writing a text in Spanish, I'm constantly Googling the translation of a word because 
often in the translation, I get a better word. For example, a word that is in English, something I, and I hadn't thought about using the equivalent of that in Spanish. So that enriches my Spanish because it, may, it allows me to use words that are not common, of common use, because I'm translating from English. Um, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I'm married to a man who doesn't speak a word of Spanish. So you can imagine that it's an exercise in imagination often. Plus, he doesn't hear very well. So, <laughs> you know. okay. so maybe that's, that's why the marriage works, because he doesn't have an idea of what I'm saying. I was going to say all marriages, I think, are an exercise in imagination. I'm very <laughs> sorry that we have to draw this to a close because it's been extremely interesting. Thanks so much to our three guests today, Isabel Allende, Mohammed Hassan, and Ian Lee. I want to remind you all that the books of all the featured writers in our salons are available for sale at the venue. And just a, a point that following us in this venue now is the festival's honoured writer, Brian Turner, speaking in a free event. A reminder that this Autumn Salon series is happening every morning of the festival. Join us tomorrow morning uh, to speak with memoirs Miro Bilbrow, exploring her highly unusual New Zealand childhood, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Marilyn Robinson, and Scottish writer Douglas Stewart, author of the Booker Prize-winning Shuggy Bain. On Sunday, we have Irish star actor turned memoirs Gabriel Byrne, award-winning Trinidadian British novelist Monique Roffey and our own crime writing star JP Pomeroy. Thank you so much to our writers. Kia ora, everyone. See you tomorrow. Matewa. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.